The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Welcome to the latest episode of the i3 podcast. I'm Natalie, one of the i3 podcast team. And here we're going to be discussing a recently held session by i3 on misconceptions, which discussed a number of curious oddities within the world of ART. Now, we highly recommend you going to watch this and we've put a link in the show notes. During the webinar, Dr. Sarima Shivhari talked about her insights from her studies following on from a paper that Giles Palmer had told her about. It was written by John Wallington and it debated the origins of embryology. The paper highlights how common European names such as Aristotle and Hippocrates shouldn't be the only ones mentioned. And Sarima is in conversation with Giles, talking more about her surprise at finding out that the concept of conception and embryology existed much earlier in one of the oldest scriptures. This was also a talk that she gave within the misconceptions session. But have a listen now to her chat with Giles. I'd like to revisit, if we may, Surima, you know, the talk you gave, I find it fascinating. And I think it's it's one of the first times um, that the people have looked at that. Is that correct? Um, Yeah, well, I think there's been um, lots of papers out there in terms of probably more common in India. There's uh, there's lots of papers uh, that have come out of India, which kind of talks about uh, the mention of embryology or just developmental biology in the ancient scriptures in India. Um, there's, I, I'm aware of a couple of papers that talk about the same topic in the Quran. Um, but in terms of it being available to the West. So, you know, when you do your PubMed search and so on, I think it's one of these, uh, these couple of papers, uh, one of both of them from John Wallingford, which kind of talks about and mentions um, the religious, religious texts or the scriptures uh, from India and other parts of the world, which have contributed towards uh, the idea or the uh, concept of conception and you know embryo development sure because when we you know when we open the textbook and 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 certainly from sort of my training you know you see names like you know aristotle hippocrates or hippocrates and you know you know dutch scientists um but all sort of white european and it's very interesting and of course um you know this paper sort of fell on my lap a little bit from wallingford you know exploring this topic um that perhaps parallel to that or even before there was a lot of um knowledge in in the process of development perhaps in embryology yes i think there there is it made me think um of some things that uh, have probably contributed towards that so first of all how far in history can we cover in our regular embryology courses okay be it in school in when you're studying your regular developmental biology or in your msc let's say higher higher education right how far back in history can you cover but also given the fact that current definition of science being you know based entirely on reproducibility what's written down evidence 
thinking about that, how acceptable would it be to go to these religious scriptures, the knowledge from which is only available to the extent of how accurate the translations from these ancient languages were. I mean, I shouldn't say ancient. Sanskrit is ancient, but not as ancient. And similarly, Latin, right? So I do not have much grasp of Sanskrit. So my understanding would be based entirely on the fact that I would assume that the translation of this religious text is accurate, right? I cannot check for accuracy. So given the definition of current science being all evidence-based, would it be okay then for us to just accept that these religious texts have had these mentioned? Well, you know, to sort of step back a little bit, I think obviously it doesn't have to be in people's education to know this, but I think it's things that you pick up. And, yeah. you know, when you, you know, when you open a textbook, when you, when you talk about development, you know, or when you give an interesting talk, the people that you pick on to give it examples, okay, of, yeah. of a development are usually European. But again, if we go back again, um, because people may not have seen your talk at the time of this podcast, they can obviously see it on ivfmeeting.com. And I suggest they see the full length of your talk and, of course, the whole webinar on misconceptions. Could you sort of like sum up in a nutshell what your talk was about? And then we'll go into a little bit more depth. I talked about, I picked up this paper um, by John Wallingford, which talks about ancient scriptures, um, you know, Vedic scriptures, Buddhist scriptures, uh, some mention of Jain scriptures, and then in um, South America. The talk was based on that, me coming across this paper, um, and so bringing into light the contributions of these ancient scriptures to modern embryology, or how far back along in history these concepts existed. And to what extent the spread of these knowledge in geography and in time, so in, in time and place, um, has it contributed towards our understanding of modern day embryology or developmental biology? So like um, Hippocrates, who's, who's the father of medicine or, or, or so is taught in Europe, he was like 500 years BC. Are we going back further, first of all? Yeah, so strangely enough, and, and this, is, <laughs> this has been an eye-opener to myself as well, and slightly embarrassing given that I come from India as well, the Vedas, the, the Vedic period as such, is uh, considered generally between sort of 1500 um, to about 300, 200, 300 BCE. So the Rig Veda was the oldest, which goes to around 1500, but the other three Vedas are around 1200. Now, the Upanishad, the Garbha Upanishad, which is, I think, to my understanding, is still the oldest scripture which mentions the development of the fetus in the womb. That is, I mean, it's debated the, the time period, but it's a Vedantic scripture, which basically means if you split the two words, uh, split the Vedantic, the word Vedantic, it, it splits into two, Veda and Anta. Veda is uh, uh, the Vedas, and Ant meaning it means the end. So the Garbha Upanishad is termed as the end of the Vedic period. Okay, it comes from the end of the Vedic period. So even if you think about the Vedic period between up to 300, so it would be around, you know, sort of 800, 900 towards the end of the last Vedas uh, to have been written on. 
Okay, so we are definitely going far before Hippocrates or Aristotle. What's amazing is some of those things that they mentioned that, you know, the, the mixture of the semen and, and the blood from the, the woman, that gives rise to the conception or gorpo. And what's amazing are few of the points that I mentioned in my talk, those are definitely my highlights. Uh, and um, the fact that they say that within 24 hours, something happens, right? They, they say a microscopic nodule is formed. No, but the, the fact that they think of that time period is when the formation, you know, which we know now as fertilized zygote, right? That happens is extraordinary. And then it talks about this bubble, Buddha, within the seventh day that it forms this, which again, if you're within the field of embryology or you know the stages of pre-implantation embryo development, you know bubble and blastocyst kind of look the same. So that was completely mind-boggling for me. The two other things that were talking about the gender or the genderless fetus and uh, twin conception, when they talk about the how the twin conception could be formed in the womb, how the fertilized egg kind of splits within the woman and that can give rise to a twin conception those are definitely the highlights I would say for me well yes they certainly were and in fact you answered my own question how similar did you find you know our modern knowledge of it represented and of course you mentioned that because Aristotle wrote about comparative biology and and he looked at aspects of the chick embryo but of course until only the 17th century with like Spallanzani they thought that you know that there was a like a minute man okay, yeah, inside every exactly. sperm. So, so the 17th yeah. we're talking about the 17th century when we are we were still in I say we sorry I shouldn't we are all we at this point we in are all we time, exactly. but uh, but I'm talking about if we split between sort of Asia and Europe in Europe in the 17th century we are talking about pre-formationism whereas yeah, yeah. whereas at that time even before that in fact in in Asia we were talking about Again, I say we, <laughs> you know what I mean. Of course, we, but, but we, as very, we as interested scientists that want to know more, basically. You know, that's what, that's yeah, what you know, um, so yeah, it's, it's amazing how they had, had the aware, how they could come to this conclusion is, I mean, that's unknown. That's unknown to every one of us. Uh, we would never know that. But I mean, from our understanding of the Vedas, as I, I grew up in India, so um, strangely enough, there were some of these that I had heard of, not in the context of embryology or developmental biology, but just as in biology. So for example, Shushruta Shamhita, I was aware of, Charak Shomrita, I was aware of, but these are much later texts, right? We knew about Shushruta, who was this ancient sage, also a physician, and is considered as sort of like the father of surgery. Him I had heard of, but the fact that this concept of conception was there even before in the Vedas, no, we had also something that I don't I don't fully understand. I think I have, I do not have enough knowledge of, but again, from my knowledge, which I cannot accept just as it is, is that the Vedas being considered as just religious texts. Of course, you mentioned this in your talk that we shouldn't get bogged down in the fact that the they religion. are religious because yeah. that was, you know, the way that the written word was done. And, and, and in the Holy Quran, there's, that recognizes that there is, uh, what's it called, a nutfa? Is that what it's called, the sperm? Yeah, 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 and, yeah, and you know, yeah. and, the, and the conceptus, 
and and also various stages and if people want to you know want to look at that to see the laws related to you know like miscarriage and abortion or whatever it's all there about embryo development and uh, and pregnancy there but that's because this was the way that things were written down of course you know and and that was where the word was spread wasn't it it wouldn't be spread any other way would it you see yes also you bring this up so of course the definition of religion has changed vastly over centuries i think from what i read and my definitely my own understanding and of course like i said it's only my personal views as such it used to be in generic terms the way of life rather than following a deity okay now of course if you are a believer and if you think about it i mean i mean in india that is it's still sort of at present true like if we start believing in someone uh, a certain character or as like our leader as such and we trust them or we start to believe them we almost consider them as like you know someone we would pray towards okay so i think the definition of religion has changed vastly over the time but the fact that the language and this way of life if a group of people takes it on and then they take it upon themselves to spread it alongside spreading that way of life they would also spread the knowledge the other preachings that are coming so that's why i think one of the questions i asked myself is does the spread of language have any connection towards how this knowledge of these scriptures spread across asia yes i mean it's definitely the case you know how is knowledge dispersed and we're probably going a little bit off track here but it's interesting when you're saying that because in europe at the time when all these great developments were coming out, there was various uh, religious parties, if you like, who were like trying to quash these details, were trying to like disprove this, wasn't it? So it was a battle between science and religion yep. in, you know, in my neck of the woods, as it were. So, that, you know, so it's interesting, you know, to see, again, the differences that happen. But it was a very fascinating talk. And I think it's very thought provoking. There's been a lot about it on social media, all good, all praising this. And um, I think it just gives us, you know, a more like universal view, which of course was what Yeah, was it opens, intent, it broadens you know. our mind. For sure, it broadens our mind. I think, um, by the way, also, Spallanzini was a priest. It's like, you know, if you have an open mind, I guess, I feel both religion, even then and now, and science, they ultimately ask the same question. Where did we come from? Of course, there are different ways that each of us, each of us, again, each of these two categories, people belonging to or, you know, tribes belonging to or us humans belonging to, they try to find answer to it. However, I think in the olden days, there was a definite overlap and then it started to split. And then you see um, the difference. And also, like you mentioned, obviously, then, you know, the social circumstances, the religious circumstances, they kind of have an impact on it. And therefore, in some areas of geography, they slow down the knowledge suddenly. Well, I didn't know that he was a priest. Okay, but I'm going to give you Mendel, who is a monk, and I'll raise you Darwin. Yeah, you see? Yeah, there you are. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like all of these great minds it's if you you can't split them you know because that's where i feel where the unity is between religion and science they try to find where we come from and there are different means by which they are trying to find the answer so it's not surprising to see that you have priests and you know other religious contributors 
towards science because they were all thinking towards that one great question trying to find an answer towards that fantastic on that we'll leave it okay and i would recommend everyone to see the webinar okay thank you once again thanks giles now, as you heard Giles and Serena say, do rewatch the Misconceptions session. We've linked it in the show notes for you because you'll also get to hear the talk from Dr. Shabhangi Gangal, who explained the triumphant yet tragic story of Dr. Subhash Mukherjee, who allegedly created the first Indian IVF baby in 1978. This is quite a controversial topic and his work went unrecognized for over a decade. Now we're going to share with you the after party from the Misconceptions session. All the speakers who were involved are detailed in the show notes. So we hope you find this interesting. Well done, everybody. Great job. Hi. Great job, everybody. It was a tough one. Not just the names, obviously, but, uh, you know, everything. You know, I enjoyed learning the names. I feel a little less guilty now that I know the names and probably be able to pronounce them. Definitely feel less guilty. I could not believe how you were like throwing those notes out. No, because you know what? So my mother tongue, well, most of the languages in India, as you can imagine, came from Sanskrit. So if I talk in my mother tongue, which I haven't regularly in the last 20 years, but those words, they kind of like you could understand some of it. Uh, but yeah, you, you have to get it right. So I have to thank God, thank heavens for Google. <laughs> well, no one would have known probably other than Dr. Kangal if you did mix them up. So. Yeah. No, but again, their pronunciations and our pronunciations are very different. So yeah. like she said, O is A and A is yeah, O. Yeah, because so. I come from northeast <laughs> part of India. Yeah, All and my I come A's from exactly the opposite. I come from Western India, so... Yeah. But there's so much there, and of course, you know, we touched a little bit on Africa, okay, and and again, you mentioned your talk about South America, but there's there's so much stuff that we don't know about, or we don't know enough about, because it's been, you know, as you say, Eurocentric, hasn't it, you see? I mean, you yeah, know, we know about these... South ditch. America, I couldn't figure out, because it's completely detached. It's completely detached, so I have... I, I couldn't even think of, like, any um, connections uh, there, how they could have, and I know one of the questions asked about, and it's an obvious question without the microscope, how, I mean, it's even before the, you know, like the philosophizing on looking into small things, I honestly have no idea. The moment I read Bubble, and I'm like, hold on a second, seven day, that was like, yeah, how on earth could they have known is i would like to say something to this so there is something in ayurveda which is a very very ancient indian medical practice and then there is this nadi pariksha so they will the doctors the ayurveda charyas as they are called they will only feel your pulse and they will be able to identify the disease and they would recommend you the medicines and so uh, what uh, Saurima said is uh, cannot be entirely untrue. There is something mm-hmm. to it because uh, these four Vedas which we have in India are seriously a treasure trove of information, knowledge. And every Veda is now Rig Yajurved. So all these Vedas, different Vedas have uh, different uh, theories and different topics to discuss. So there is a lot about medicine. Yeah, I couldn't explain as to how scientifically accurate they are. Of course, you know, the the timings they've given a little slower than we know now, now, but this is like thousands of years ago. 
Um, so definitely, so they, are, they must have had ways of knowing this. It's just you know not knowing how they could come to these conclusions. It it is it's amazing. Now there were so many questions and. I hope we can slightly dispel the fact that we don't know a lot about developmental biology or reproductive biology, but maybe it's coming from the more mature biologist. I'm not sure if it's if it's be, even being taught nowadays, all the stuff, all the weird and wonderful stuff we do. Well, that's my concern. Uh, and I, I don't know it for a fact, but I have the impression that that's the case. And one has to understand that when you look at the sorts of things that embryologists, young embryologists have to learn these days that we didn't have to learn, that we had decades to accumulate perhaps or ignore as the case may be. So when you're coming into a lab and, and you have to understand the, the molecular genetics of, of, the, of the embryo, that's a big deal. It takes up a lot of time. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a lost art, but I, I hope there's some case to sort of rejuvenate that as part of the part of the education of young biologists. I completely agree with you. You, you think of the Godkeys and Dwayne Kramers and George Seidel, those programs that, you know, um, taught the fundamental comparative biology. And um, that's one of the big criticisms I have with these um, ever popping up new embryology training centers. Oh, send you embryology year for three months and they'll be a fully trained embryologist. But what are we sacrificing as far as fundamental base knowledge? The only or one of that I am acutely aware of is the program here at CSU uh, that Jane Barfield has. I actually teach the hyena reproduction um, class <laughs> in her program, but she has a really good um, comparative biology class that's probably the closest that I've seen to, you know, these old programs that most of them don't exist anymore. You're talking about one of the great reproductive biology groups in the world, and I've, I've been there on a number of occasions. Mm -hmm. I agree with you entirely, on the, certainly on the group. I don't know anything particularly about the education, but the, the background of that, re, that uh, institution is phenomenal. And I mean, I'm surprised that people don't want to know about this. I mean, you know, you, you just pick it up as you go along, I think. And, uh, you know, if you don't learn at a university, I think that you know, there's a lot of us that pick it up because it's just interesting and you can somehow try and relate it to what could happen, you know, in the humans, like we mentioned about the diapause. That's a fascinating field and we've had a lot of people talking about that. It's just, you know, how how perhaps can you relate that? What are the mechanisms? And then you can go into, you know, all the nuts and bolts about it. In your final exam, in your BSc or MSc, they don't ask these questions and the students just tend to skip the topics they know they're not going to be asked questions on because at the end of the day all they're aiming for I don't know is just like you know the grades at the end of it is a distinction is it a upper second and, and so on it's really sad because I suppose at the same time does it in a way filter through the people who are genuinely interested and they would find out irrespective of whether they had had a lecture. I mean, also from inspirational speakers as well. I mean, if they can draw from the inspiration, from their inspirational talks, maybe they would look up. But I do miss out because um, I didn't have, and even when I was studying, I didn't have all of them. But having said that, um, the STP program in um, the UK, uh, which is done along, um, with um, sort of things, links with Manchester University, 
the Manchester Metropolitan, um, we did have a talk which covered a little bit about the oddities in embryology. So, yeah. I, we always, um, not criticize, but when Godkey taught us all these things about the different species, you know, it went beyond just the reproduction. It was how many species of giraffe are there and can you draw their dots and what, where are the zebras here and why like, so it, it went bigger than just the reproduction part. Yeah. But, you know, back then you would think, oh, well, you can just research it or Google it if you need to, but people don't. And that's the problem. Yeah. If they don't learn it in a formal setting. They might see something on National Geographic on TV show, like one of the people in the audience asked me when I commented about the queen bee, you know, do you have a, a reading reference for it? I'm like, no, I just saw it on some nature show on TV. Um, but if people are not interested, they are not going to watch those shows. The Bob Godkey was kind of an exceptional representation. Studying with Bob Godkey was just like a kind of a four year stress test, as I understand. <laughs> of your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> of everything in your life. <laughs> I wonder if I could if I could make a, a a comment about the story of Dr. Mukherjee, which is which is a very tragic story, but it, it in some ways it kind of relates because knowing the history of reproductive biology also has some importance, like knowing the comparative reproductive biology. Uh, and what it tells us is to be very careful about what we accept and what we reject. Uh, when it first appears. And there are a number of stories that, that I have experienced during my career, which I thought were particularly interesting and, and relate in a certain extent. And I'll, I'll give you one example. And that was the story of Rosalind Yalo and Salomon Burzen. Uh, and they were for the people who ultimately developed radioimmunoassay. And in order to do that, they, they showed that, that the uh, human body could produce uh, antibodies against insulin because that was where they started and they were not allowed to publish that the uh, the people of the time would not accept that you could create an antibody to insulin uh, and so consequently their work was shelved uh, for several years before they could publish it and and they won the nobel prize for it ultimately so dr mukherjee's story is particularly tragic but certainly not unique and and not unique to to india either um, so we, we have to be cognizant of the possibility that if we say something's not possible then we could well be wrong so, to leave our minds open it wasn't it kind of the same for uh, john rock who... yes yeah rock was another example you uh, for that for that matter not on on the article um it's kind of assumed that that was his work now, but you could not find a reference with his name on it. But Bob Edwards was another example. Yeah, his work was, was not that. funded uh, and in fact was on the verge of being prohibited uh, when he was trying to do human and free to fertilization. So uh, is it I mean, even the fact that he got his Nobel Prize much later than should have probably been given. Yes, I agree with that entirely. Obviously, there's some skepticism about the, the history of IVF and India um, and Dr. Mukherjee. Um, but I think if we think back even to the history of IVF in England with Patrick Stetro and Bob Edwards, you know, it wasn't really until recently that Gene Purdy was 
really introduced back into that story as, as a very important um, part of the first IVF um, baby. Um, and you know, I think that even though it seems to be a relatively recent um, historical uh, period of time, you know, there are things that, that have been forgotten about um, and there are things which which have been brought back into importance um, in these days. I was going to say, um, now I was busy behind the scenes and one of, you know, for my sins, I don't hear a lot of the talks, but did you not mention one of my favourites, which is the armadillo? Did you not mention that? Don? I, I didn't, and you know, somebody else did in the questions, and, and I agree that it is fascinating. And if, for people who don't know the story, uh, the armadillo produces, depending on the species uh, or the subspecies, either or identical quadruplets or identical octuplets. Uh, and I actually used that example many years ago when I was discussing the implications of animal cloning because those octuplets are a clone. Uh, human twins, uh, monozygotic twins, are a clone. Uh, and so a lot of the concerns about cloning, particularly in domestic animals, were not well founded, quite frankly. Uh, when, you when you understand from the basic biology uh, that this occurs naturally. Uh, most of the organisms in the world are clones uh, because bacteria are virtually all clones. They produce asexually, that's cloning. So just, just one more example, but the armadillo is an interesting example. It's also the only species that will harbor the virus uh, for leprosy. So it's used as a model animal for the study of leprosy. I'm sure that wasn't what you had in mind, but. <laughs> no, but I always think of that. I always think of, you know, if there's lessons to be learned about cloning, we should, you know, we should obviously go to the animal kingdom. That's the thing. Yes, it's, and well, again, human, human twins are, human monozygotic twins, identical twins are a clone. Great, well, I've kept you all very late, especially Dr. Shub there. Yeah. It was really enlightening. You all gave fantastic presentations, and I, and, you know, and I think it left its mark, uh, giving away all these new and exciting things, which people should perhaps read into more. No, I just want to say thanks, Giles. <laughs> you didn't accept uh, no as an answer, and I'm so glad you didn't. Uh, because <laughs> I mean, I honestly, literally, only can think of the word that I feel a little less guilty. Um, now that I know a little bit more about, uh, you know, the, the ancient scriptures. Last week, I regretted saying yes to this. <laughs> I just moved my entire life. Well, how do you feel now? Yes. How do you feel now, by the way? Now that you've done it, you're glad you yeah, did no, it. It was great. I'm glad I did it, of course. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I learned from my master's ages ago was that I was told, just say yes. And you'll figure it out. So <laughs> That used to be my philosophy. Rima, it's true. Earlier in your career, you have to say yes. And then there's this tipping point where you have to learn to say no, yeah. because you can get yourself in more trouble if you say yes and you can't really deliver. So All right. fine line. You like touched upon you know, like some of the training academies and you've mentioned now about when you're young to say yes and when not to say that. There's going to be a session in the future. It's going to be about this um, great glut we have of embryologists. Everyone is hiring. It seems you can't get embryologists quicker. There's a lot of movement going around between the clinics. And of course, the work is getting more and more. So I'll leave everyone on that note. And hopefully in these courses, they'll teach about the things we learned in this session. Thank you.
thank you all very much. Thanks, thank Charles. You. Thanks to everybody. Bye. 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 Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.